Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, episode number 21, with Dr. Jeremiah Gibbs, chaplain at the University of Indianapolis. It's an anxiety-ridden prospect to choose a denomination not knowing if, um, if that denomination is going to be accepting of some small change you make in your theology down the road. And I can enter into this United Methodist Church knowing that there's virtually no place where I would no, no longer be welcome. Hi, I am David B.W. Owen, a retired United Methodist clergy and currently chair of the African University Campaign. I've been talking with Brad Miller, Dr. Brad Miller, my good friend and the director of the Hoosier United Methodist Pop- Podcast. Thank you for listening. believes that a strong connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to achieving the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The Hoosier United Methodist Podcast will help you and your church connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from successful pastors and people making a difference in United Methodist Churches in Indiana. And now, here's Brad. Hello again, good people, and welcome to this edition number 21 of the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. That's me, and I welcome you to the podcast today where it is our mission to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana for the purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And we do that by telling the stories of faith and the people and the innovators and the churches and the ministries that are happening in our state and telling those good news stories in order to strengthen our connection. Today we're talking about a person who's made his own transition from another denomination to uniting with the United Methodist Church as a clergy member of the conference in the process of becoming an elder and is currently serving as the chaplain at the University of Indianapolis. That's Dr. Jeremiah Gibbs, and he's with us today to share a little bit about his journey from the Assemblies of God to becoming a United Methodist pastor serving at the University of Indianapolis. He talks a little bit about also what it's like to serve in the uh, uh, very uh, interesting and and innovative and uh, pluralistic setting of a university campus with not only Christian students from various backgrounds, United Methodist, Pentecostal, uh, Roman Catholic, uh, small church, large church, all those different diversities among Christians, but certainly other people of other faiths, including he talks a little bit about the interesting dynamics that happened when a group of uh, Saudi Arabia students came into the school and, of course, bringing their Muslim faith and how there were some interesting opportunities for hospitality, radical hospitality to take place. Uh, Reverend Gibbs has a really fascinating story to tell about his journey in the faith and how he became united to the, connected to the United Methodist Church through uh, his personal relationships and through United Methodist Seminary and how he landed at the University of Indianapolis. And uh, so we'll get into his uh, his story here today. I did want to tell you that today's uh, podcast is brought to you by the book Meet the Good People by Reverend Dr. Roger Ross. He's a uh, pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Springfield, Illinois. And his book Meet the Good People is a great resource for preaching, teaching, and small group ministry. I commend it to you. The Who's United Methodist podcast is also supportive of We Help Out with the with Mission Guatemala. Mission Guatemala is under the direction of Reverend Tom Heaton has some wonderful ministries, particularly to the to the incredibly uh, desperately poor people in the rural area of Guatemala. You need to check that out by going to missionguatemala.com. Our focus today is about what it means for a person to make a decision in their life to transfer from another denomination and another fellowship to the United Methodist Church and to serve in the diverse setting of a, as a university chaplaincy. It's the story of Jeremiah Gibbs. Let's get into our conversation with Dr. Gibbs right now. Jeremiah Gibbs. Jeremiah, 
is the university chaplain at the University of Indianapolis, Indianapolis, Indiana, and he is, serves in that capacity, and uh, but has also made a transition in his life from being a part of the Assemblies of God denomination to being a commission elder in the United Methodist Church. And so we're going to talk a little bit today about his role at the university and about his journey to becoming United Methodist. Jeremiah, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about what you do here at the University of Indianapolis, what your role is, what your vision is for what's going on here. Yeah, great. Yeah, so I, this is my uh, seventh year serving with the university. I, um, I serve as a university chaplain, but uh, I'm also on the faculty in that role. And so my role is really a, a combination of directing campus ministry here at the university uh, and providing leadership and administration for that, but also um, – uh, I do a fair amount of teaching as well, um, especially in our Christian formation program, but uh, I've taught youth ministry courses and other sort of ministry-related courses as well. Um, so, you know, we have a, a pretty unique environment at the university where um, we are very thoroughly committed to our uh, United Methodist-related um, uh, status or, or, or institutional mission. Um, but then it is a pluralistic university, so we have a pretty diverse religious body here. Um, and being able to provide leadership that embraces a lot of different religious traditions as well as really um, – thoroughly committing to uh, both our United Methodist uh, relationship and our campus ministry is an ecumenical ministry. And so uh, being able to, to draw out the distinctions between different uh, Christian traditions. So it's, it's really a, a pretty kind of complex animal in, in that sense. And I think there's not, it's not completely unique. There are other um, colleges and universities that are, have taken a similar approach, but it is one that um, has its challenges and and really a lot of joys as well. Um, so that's that's most of what that's I great. do. So yeah. you, you focus on how UND is a United Methodist related institution, but you got a lot of diversity mm-hmm. here, and you got a lot of opportunities for some interesting dynamics, both between staff and the students, and among yeah. the students themselves. Yeah. Can you share a story about how something interesting or some growth really happened among some of your students because of some of the things that you're involved with here in the uh, religious life community? Yeah, gosh, there's a a lot of stories to tell. I think one of the ones that might be most interesting from a kind of an interreligious perspective uh, has happened in the last three or four years. It's not a, a particular story, but it's kind of an arc or a trajectory over the last several years. Um, we, we we had about a hundred Saudi Arabian Muslims that started coming to uh, the university first for our English program, uh, but then they can matriculate into uh, the the regular uh, course program, and so. You know, suddenly there are lots of very faithful Muslims who have their own cultural identity in addition to their religious identity. And um, we have a, a prayer space that's adjacent to the chapel here, um, and we had to uh, really make sure that we were providing good hospitality for those persons. And it was interesting because those spaces that, um, that were now being used for Muslim prayer and so on were – spaces that the Christians had sort of owned, right? I mean, they had had all of their own programming and they had um, uh, they they were using that space all of the time and, and so the growth from being able to recognize that um, providing hospitality for these other persons on our campus, these other religious persons, um, really was a significant shift for our students. Our students, you mean for your Christian students, for our Christian students, okay. absolutely, yeah. And and here I'm thinking about you know the majority of the students who are uh, participating in religious life on a regular basis are evangelicals and United Methodists and Roman Catholics and 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 some of the most committed from those traditions. And so it was a really a challenge for many of them to make sense of, you know, what do I, how do I share this space? Eyes, perhaps, or maybe, was there any 
conf- conflict with that, or was this a good experience? I, I wouldn't that? say that, I wouldn't say that there was conflict, but there was uneasiness. You know, it was like w- w- you would go. We would come in for our communion time, for instance, in one of the smaller spaces. Our communion, university communion, was relatively small uh, time. It was a monthly worship service outside of our regular cycle, and so on. So we would have our our monthly communion service, and that space that we used for that was the space that Muslims used to pray, you know, four or five times a day. And so there would be the Muslim prayer rugs and so on that were available for them in their regular use. And and so people just had to reset their their understanding of, of the space. It wasn't a space that was only use uh, in use for them. Um, and, and so far that has all been really good, although sometimes uncomfortable. And uh, I actually think that's a good thing that you well, have to share that kind of Well, can be a, certainly a learning experience, that's exactly and right. that's why a university exists, to be a learning That's right. You know, I, I, right now on our campus, we have uh, lots of freshmen, incoming freshmen, coming for registration and so on. And, and I'm telling those folks, you know, especially for the majority of, of our students who come from the Midwest, um, in Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan, those students largely don't experience lots and lots of diversity in their home, their school and their church and so on. We're relatively Midwestern monolithic, right? Sure. And, and and here at the university, they're actually experiencing a fair amount of diversity. They have, we have a good, sizable population of Saudi Arabian Muslims, sizable population of Chinese students. Um, for some persons, they've never sat in a class with an African American, mm-hmm. you know. And, and of sure. course, we have a, a large population of African American students uh, here in would the you, city. Would so. you say your international students, especially those of uh, faiths other than Christian, do you feel like are you observing that they're received? Or are they doing okay? Is this working? In other words, yeah, yeah, I think it does work well. I think that's um, and and I think one of the reasons that it works well is because of the pretty unique kind of uh, religious environment that we're crafting. And it, and it isn't easy. Yet. It takes a fair amount of work to cultivate that um, environment, that hospitality in, in uh religious environment but our faculty are certainly committed to it our campus ministry is committed to it and um you know if you if you set a culture then students will often um uh, find a way to so an example so. of some unity and yeah. accepting of, of diversity and yeah. we live in a big world yeah not just a monolithic world a small yeah. town indiana a small town wherever or large town yeah. or whatever it would be and to have some diversity yeah. And I think if I can, if I sure, can continue, I, you know, one other way that that really, the, for especially for our Christian students, and in that sense, um, the majority of our students are, of course, Christian, and the majority of the students involved with campus ministry life are Christian. Um, but our chapel services on Thursday night, we have uh, chapel. The chapel was pretty much full every Thursday night, and we would have about twenty percent of those service of the people in that service would be from Roman Catholic background. Probably another 20% would be from Pentecostal backgrounds, and the the rest would be either mainline Protestants or Evangelicals and Baptists. So a really compl- uh, diverse um, Christian community as well. It's not – I mean, it's not often that United Methodists and Pentecostals and Catholics are worshiping together in their own churches. They just yeah, don't do that's, it. That's a really good point. Uh, and so in, the, in chapel here, they actually are – we have services that are – some people would refer to them as non-denominational, and I usually stop them and say, no, we're not non-denominational, we're really multi-denominational or ecumenical, because we have practices that are drawing upon the Catholic traditions and Pentecostal traditions, all kind of brought together in a really unique uh, liturgy, uh, which is also transformative for our students. When you have diversity, you can also think of it not only as being the differences brought together, but you can think of it kind of as uh, the the integrative aspect of it, or mosaic perhaps, maybe an imagery. I think that's a great uh, that we might use to to, to use this, and yeah. but it stretches people, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely, it absolutely. People. And I, I think that uh, I know when I go into my daily work, whether that's in the classroom in our Christian formation uh, classes, or whether that's in our. Um, in our chapel services, I know when I go into my daily interactions with students that 
that's what's probably most unique about the campus ministry experience in the whole course of their life. Because many of them will go back to uh, their rural Indiana town. Um, But this period of their life has an opportunity to stretch them in some pretty unique ways. And so I, I take that sort of calling pretty seriously. Which can make a difference moving forward yeah. wherever they go. Absolutely, yeah. You speak of being stretched, how yeah. part of your role here is to uh, stretch the minds and the experiences uh, culturally, educationally, even religiously yeah. with the uh, students that you have. In your life, you've had some stretching to do as well. Yeah. We've uh, just recently, you made some decisions in, in your life to transition from Assemblies of God to now become uh, an order, uh, commissioned as an elder in the United Methodist Church on the track towards ordination as an mm-hmm. elder in the United Methodist Church. And uh, I'm just interested to hear a little bit about your story, about how yeah. that came about. What are some of the um, key moments mm-hmm. that led you to start to move towards this direction? Yeah. Just tell us your story a little bit of what went on with you in terms of making these transitions. Yeah. Well, I was first credentialed uh, in the Assemblies of God in 2004, uh, and then later ordained in the Assemblies of God. And um, interestingly, I, I really received my call to ministry uh, in an Assemblies of God church in, in Washington, Illinois, near Peoria, Illinois. Um, started to pursue that call to ministry. Um, when I got to, I, I decided to go to Garrett Seminary, Garrett Evangelical Seminary in Chicagoland, mostly, ironically, and, and this is somehow somehow the way that calling works sometimes, I chose that seminary mostly because I had a house in Peoria that I was renting out and I needed to be able to get back to that house. So I, I limited the ge- geography of my seminary choices and ended up at Garrett Evangelical. They gave me great financial aid and, and was excited about the diversity of the religious community there. But when I got to a United Methodist Seminary, most of my employment opportunities were at United Methodist Churches. You know, that was the, the places that I was hearing about right. uh, for employment and so on. So I first started working in a United Methodist Church in 2006 as an associate pastor, um, mostly doing music ministry. Um, and then we, we went to it with a period without a senior pastor and served as the interim um, until they, they were able to make another appointment and so on. And then I served in another United Methodist Church doing music ministry and youth ministry. Um, um, and uh, and then by the time I graduated, I ended up meeting a United Methodist girl uh, and got married um, after my I, – I did a two-year seminary degree um, and got married after my – uh, my degree, and she was still finishing up. She did an MDiv, and I had done a master's in theology. Um, okay. uh, and so, uh, after my two years, we got married, and and still had about a year of school left there. Uh, I started my PhD program um, while we were still in Chicago, and then of course she got ready to be ordained, and she had. Um, a pretty promising opportunity for employment to follow the ordination track here in, in Indiana um, as a PhD uh, faculty type person. Um, I didn't know what my um, career was going to hold. That's a pretty competitive uh, job market. So I followed her back to Indiana uh, as she took her appointment here in Indiana and really by God's grace uh, ended up uh, in the second year that we lived in Indiana. I took a one-year interim uh, position here at the University of Indianapolis as an interim chaplain. That whole course, you know, you end up first working in some United Methodist Church, well, first going to a UM seminary, then working in a couple UM churches, then marrying a United Methodist, and then working for a United Methodist uh, institution. And being the chaplain here at the university, I've been invited into lots and lots of leadership um, with the annual conference and with local churches doing consulting related to youth ministry, consulting related to worship, you know, and so have really been integrated into the United Methodist life um, slowly and not, maybe not so slowly in some ways, but um, that uh, that movement towards United Methodism was largely institutional um, in that in that I was building relationships and networks within the United Methodist Church and um, Eventually, it just began to make more and more sense that uh, if these are where my connections is, this is where my ministry is, then I uh, really needed to make the move over. Jeremiah, did, along that way, did you have kind of a, 
a moment or an aha moment, yeah. if you will, where yeah. you kind of say, okay, this clicks yeah. for me, this is it for me. You know, I did, and it's going to, it may be a little bit uh, disappointing on the front end for those that are. Um, uh, want to hear the story, but really what happened is a, a realization that, you know, my wife is itinerant as a United Methodist elder, and um, I knew that she is going to continue to be appointed other places. And um, when it became clear that you know, if she gets appointed to Fort Wayne or to, you know, even to an out-of-state appointment sometimes and so on, if she has those opportunities and decides to pursue those, um, then I would be holding her up if I said, no, you can't take this opportunity because I'm not going to have a job in that city, you know. And so I really wanted to – we were already putting half of our life in the hands of the United Methodist appointment system into this, the itinerancy system. And it just made sense for me to subject myself to the itinerancy system and, and really allow um, the Methodist church. And, and there's a trust there yeah, that say, some way that it's God, and, uh, God is involved. And, okay, right. uh, and so we just said, you know, it, it just makes sense to um, – also put my uh, appointment, my um, ministry in the hands of the of the cabinet, and let them make decisions about where is best to use both of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that happened about two and a half years ago. But as you probably know, um, the process of because I, I even though I have a master's and PhD for me and I'm at the seminary, I had no plans of being a United Methodist elder. So I had some United Methodist uh, coursework that had to be completed. Um, I had to go through the process of having a one-year um, time of where my ministry was under supervision as a district superintendent as an other fellowship minister, an OF minister. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was quite a long process to get from that decision a couple yeah, of years ago. Yeah, interviews and things like oh, that. Of course, way. yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, so it's been a couple years in the process and, and just completed recently. So You kind of outline kind of the framework, yeah. kind of some of the family dynamics uh-huh. and things like that. Tell me if there is any kind of a... Uh, theological or spiritual dynamic going yeah. on here between your understanding of how Christianity works from an Assemblies of God perspective yeah. to a UMC perspective. Yeah. What kind of process went along that? Yeah, well, I mean, my PhD is in theology, so I, I, it's hard for me to not think theologically. Um, the first one, though, is actually the first sort of uh, administrative, if you will. It's also a theological commitment, but but it's, it's kind of a culture difference um, that both the Assemblies of God and the United Methodist Church fully uh, uh, embrace and support the role of women in ministry officially. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the, the Assemblies of God has, has done so longer than the United Methodist Church has. Um, but the Assemblies of God have never really caught up culturally to that. And that's a commitment of mine. It's part of my writing ministry. I, I blog and, and write books and so on. And, and some of that, you know, that part of that writing ministry has been um, in support of women in ministry theologically and administratively. Um, and so that that's a culture shift that was very uncomfortable for me being in the Assemblies of God where officially we affirmed the role of women in ministry, but then in actuality, most women didn't have opportunities um, to to pastor and to lead churches. So you Sometimes saw a they did. How it was actually lived out in the AG compared right. to the UMC. Yeah, absolutely. So while the the statements were both supportive in both places, um, that is is much better supported in part because of the appointment system in the United Methodist Church. Um, but then you know there were some theological things too. I I still would say that on the whole, um, I theologically affirm. Uh, the the doctrine of the assemblies of God. Um, however, the, they have w- what are called the sixteen tenets of faith. It might be somewhat equivalent to the Articles of Religion or something okay. within the UMC. And these sixteen tenets of faith, however, um, are very strictly adhered to. 
Uh, and so you actually sign a statement every year saying, do you still agree with the 16 tenets of faith? And the only one of those that would have any difference uh, between uh, United Methodism and and what would – I'm sorry, between the Assemblies of God and what would be accepted in United Methodism is baptism, their believers' baptism in the, in the Assemblies of God. But otherwise, you could believe everything in the Assemblies of God and be a faithful United Methodist without concern. Mm-hmm. But the 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 – uh, Assemblies of God culturally interprets those very, very narrowly, um, so that you know, for instance, um, you can be an Assemblies of God minister with a variety of different eschatological beliefs, beliefs about the end times. However, you can't teach anything other than um, the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial uh, position that is um, implicit in. The doctrinal statement. So, if you had so, a similar position, if you had as you have now at University of Annapolis, if you had this at Assemblies of God College, uh-huh. you would have some uh, understanding that you would teach uh, certain theological tenets in Absolutely. a certain aspect. Absolutely, yeah. So we have, whereas you might have a little bit more broad-based opportunities in this environment. Absolutely, and in fact, because you know the United Methodist Church uh, doesn't really control. The university in the same way the Assemblies of God institutions would. Assemblies of God, the the pastors of Assemblies of God institutions, and we usually call that position. We I'm not you know Assemblies of God anymore. The Assemblies of God usually calls that a campus pastor. But those campus pastors would absolutely have to toe the line doctrinally to the Assemblies of God positions here. Because even organizationally, it's a part of the university, which be part of the of the Absolutely, yeah. The, those every position, every faculty position, especially theology faculty and the campus pastors and so on, it's understood that their mission is to form people within this doctrinal commitment. And I actually, I don't know that I would have a a strict problem with that, but again, part of what happens culturally is that you know, you have to interpret those statements, right? And certain certain, uh, interpretations of those statements have gained a kind of canonicity that this is the official way that you need to understand our eschatology. And and that's the places where it's become a little more outside our uh outside of our comfort zone or whatever you want to say. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and and on the whole, I mean, I don't I don't want to paint it as if there are folks that are sort of vindictive out there trying to to be heresy hunters or something like that. It's certainly not like that. But there is an expectation that this is going to be the theology that we're going to teach. Now, on the one hand, that's positive, right? Because. Without a certain kind of doctrinal unity, we get the kind of arguments that have been present at General Conference, right? I mean, there's. I know that there's a lot of. Administrative, yeah, I want to ask you about how you feel yeah. about uh, how you feel about entering the UMC at a yeah. time when there is some discussion and some yeah. discord and some pretty significant discord. Yeah, yeah. I, that part is a, is a um, a challenge for me in some ways. Um, it that there is a. I should step back and say there's a certain amount of freedom for me in knowing that um, I don't have to watch every word that I say. I'll give you, there's a, we had a a Catholic lecturer here at the university a number of years ago, and he made this phrase, he was going to say something related to interfaith relations. And he made, he said, hold on, I have to be careful with my words because they may hear me in Rome. And really what he was saying was he wanted to – the words that he said had to line up with what would be acceptable to the the magisterium. You felt some similar type of pressure? I felt a similar kind of pressure in the Assemblies of God. I don't have positions that are grossly problematic for the Assemblies of God. But there was always an uncertainty. If I I say something not quite the right way, is somebody going to decide that? Yeah, somebody may decide to try to – pursue me and then uh and and uh, um i I really have a sense of freedom I sense a bit now. Of underlying kind of tension, some I don't know what just discomfort about this relationship that you was a factor in you moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. UFC. Yeah, there was there was an uncertainty. Not again, I, my positions were mostly still in line, but there's still there was a, a kind of narrowness to those interpretations that I was never comfortable with, and so now there's quite a bit of uh, sense of freedom that I none of my 
my positions would be problematic for sure. United Methodists. And so there's a this, freedom there. Jeremiah, can um, you relate it all to what you're describing in your experience, former experience in the Sons of God? I'm thinking theologically here yeah. now. Towards in the United Methodist Church and Wesleyan thinking uh-huh. of a primacy of grace. Right. Mm-hmm. Can you say a word about that? Is that anywhere involved with this here? Yeah, I think. I, I mean, I, I would want to say the Assemblies of God is just as grace-oriented in their theology, um, and in some ways maybe more so. I think most of it comes down to a kind of sense of doctrinal certainty, that United Methodists are are very comfortable with ambiguity um, in ways that's refreshing in some ways. And But it's also the same source of amb- of uh, comfort with ambiguity. And I should say, you know, that's one of the, the learning objectives of our spiritual formation program is that students would be able to move forward in faith in light of ambiguity mm. and living in the in ambiguity. Um, so a it's, of, a, it's a really a valuable area. Yeah, here. absolutely. And so I, I, I really value that. But the, you know, the other side of that coin then is when we get into doctrinal disputes, we still have to be able to sort those out. And that's really where some of the general conference, uh, Discussion well, the ambiguity at General Conference, which has led to this scored from the left, right, yeah. middle, whatever you yeah. want to say, is that ambiguity has led us to not have an, a certainty as a whole yeah. about a direction. Yeah. So you have several different directions. Yeah. That's part of it. And, you know, for, for me personally, um, the the only anxiety about the, the conversations, because I have been around the United Methodist Church now since 2006 uh, and have been paying attention to some of these things for almost a decade. Um, I don't think that on the whole that that we're going to have any sort of catastrophic shifts. There's always this fear of that, right, that there's something really uh, huge that's going to shift. I don't foresee that. But if there were something like a, a, a schism, which is certainly a part of the conversation at General Conference, then I, that I would become uncomfortable there, not um, because of the schism. As, as I mean, that may actually be healthy for the church in some ways. Um, not healthy for the institution, but healthy in the long run. Um, but personally, I am a conservative. I mean, I, theologically, I'm a conservative. Um, but I don't think I want to be a part of a, of a denomination, a split, or, or however that would go down, where the grounds upon which we split was an anti-LGBT stance. Mm. You know, I mean, <laughs> I'm pretty conservative on these issues, but but you know that that becomes problematic. So who wants to who and uh, you know Adam the Hamilton? Focus on what we're against instead of what we're for. Absolutely. Absolutely, you know, and and I, that was about Adam, Adam Hamilton. I yeah, well, Adam Hamilton's um, at, at General Conference. I was not at General Conference, but one, during the stream, Adam Hamilton was addressing the um, some, the college uh, and seminarians in a breakfast one morning. I actually and, heard that, that uh, talk you're talking. About. Yeah, and and he outlined some of what the conversation had been about uh, a possible schism prior to the bishop's statement, and um, ultimately that never as as far as I know, never got brought to the floor of General Conference, the proposals. But one of the points that he made was that uh, he said that, you know, there probably has to be a group of people who want to be supportive on LGBT issues and can't be in fellowship with those who won't. And then there's a group of people who, on the other side, who um, are... are uh, Conservative on sexuality issues and can't be in fellowship with those who are not. And he estimated, of course, it's just one guy, but he knows the denomination relatively well. He's been in some important conversations. He says that 75% of the denomination would be uh, comfortable with people living their conscience on these issues. Um, And you know, I, I would probably be uh, much more comfortable in that place where people have to live their convictions and churches have to live their convictions. Sometimes uh, it's called that the extreme middle. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, that the more or less the, oh, 10% or so on the extreme right, 10% uh-huh. or so on the extreme left, but the majority yeah. of UMC is kind of in that extreme middle, yeah. kind of keeping the main thing the main thing yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and moving forward yeah. with, with grace. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we do say overall in the United Methodist Church, Jeremiah, is that our mission is to um, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the mm-hmm. transformation of the world. Yeah. 
from your perspective, as a a person who's been a student of the UMC, in as much mm-hmm. as you have chosen mm-hmm. in you know as a, a at this stage of your ministry to unite with the United Methodist Church, yeah. How do you think we're doing at that, and where are we going with that question, if that's our mission? Yeah. Um, well, uh, Kenda Creasy Dean, in her book, Almost Christian, um, she says that youth ministry is the barometer um, for the whole church, that if you really want to see what's happening in the whole church, then take a look at what are happening with young people, um, because they are they are the the sort of pure prospects or, or pure production, if you will, of who you are as a denomination. Um, and if that is our barometer, then I am a bit concerned. <laughs> and, and the primary well, reason, a college uh, chaplain, yeah. you see some of those folks who are emerging out of youth ministry or not, absolutely into yeah. the university environment. Yeah. So say more so, about that. Yeah. Please. So two things there. One, I'm I'm receiving students uh, into ministry from various churches, and certainly some of those are excellent students, uh, excellent in their faith and and in every other way. Um, I also uh, six years ago I started with the annual conference. We started what's called the Student Leadership Academy. So we bring in about 100 high school students to the university for a week of vocational discernment um, and and learning about theology of call and so on. And and so I've I've been able to kind of keep a, a but because of these programs meant for high schoolers as well as um, the high school students that are graduating in our program, I've been able to take a pretty good measure of of what some of the best. I mean, we're getting the leaders right. These are people nominated for leadership that we're that we're interacting with, and. You know, a f- very few of those high school students are even being formed um, at a at a level deep enough that considering God's call to ministry is is a viable possibility for them, mm-hmm. and that's concerning. Not because we need more people to be pastors, although we do, but because if they're not, if we aren't forming people at some of the deepest levels um, to be ready for those kinds of uh, uh, calling, then we're also not forming them to be able to live that, live out their faith in other ways, right? Well, and, whether it's a Christian business person absolutely. or a teacher yeah. or uh, or just a committed, whatever. faithful uh, mother or, or sure. a f- faithful, committed factory worker how, how, how do we how do we form people for that kind of life and I think there's a for me there's a good indication that um, that we're not doing that well you know and even some of the students that receive call to ministry don't know basic Bible stories and so on, right? There's a certain level of ignorance, which is a bit concerning. It, it? It's very concerning, you know, yeah. And yeah. Uh, we see that sometimes in educational areas. Uh, I come from a family of educators, and sometimes yeah. it's just simple grammar and things like that. Yeah. But certainly in faith formation yeah. and even understanding of some basic biblical stories even yeah. is uh, a little bit disconcerting. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, the, the other side of that is, I should say, you know, we get some students that are absolutely phenomenal, right, that have deep, deep faith formation, that have really deep commitments and, and know their scripture, know Wesleyan theology and understand the mission structure of the United Methodist Church because maybe they've gone to annual conference with their parents or they've been a delegate or something like that. And well, so there are some that have been The strengths of well. local churches people are part of yeah. very greatly, right? Absolutely. And that's actually a really good indication. Um we are able to i'm often able to tell the health of a congregation by the kinds of students that come to the university sure. you know maybe not on one student you can never but if you get two or three or four and they're very similar in their faith life then you begin to get a sense for what that church is like you know my wife is the pastor now just a year ago was appointed to old bethel united methodist on the east side and when she received the call from the district superintendent and said you know honey we we have this opportunity. I said, I've never walked in the doors of that church, but I've had about four students from Old Bethel, and it's a good church. I just knew because the students that I was receiving were very faithful, very faithful good. people. Um, so, you know, there are places that... There are signs of hope, has, there, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Which is kind of my next question yeah. for you. What do you see 
Uh, part of what had, I, I believe, at least a part of what drew you in to the United Methodist Church was not just your marriage and not just your schooling and yeah. not just some of the other factors, but you must see something positive moving forward or you or you wouldn't yeah. be a part of it. At least yeah, I'm that's making right. that assumption. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, tell me, what do you see are some of the positive signs? What are the, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about some concerns yeah. about some students yeah. here. What do you see as the signs of hope? What do you see yeah. as some positive things moving forward which draw you not only in, but can be a positive factor moving forward for yeah. either your students or for the church. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think one of the most positive factors is um, first of all, the United Methodist Church has enormous resources. And I know that we don't feel like that sometimes because you know we have the pressures of shrinking budgets in both local congregations and general conferences and annual conferences. But there is an enormous amount of resources in the denomination. And the denomination is is largely at a point where um, they recognize the need to put those resources to use in ministries that are going to be fruitful. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, an example, uh, just give you an idea. Um, in the Assemblies of God, church planting is strategic. It's part of the DNA mm-hmm. of the denomination. So, you know, the Assemblies of God might, church, might plant four or five churches a year in the state of Indiana. I don't know exactly how many it is, but it's it, there's a number of churches every right. year. But many of those churches are, you know, 45 people. They're struggling to make budgets. The, the pastors often don't have salaries or have very small salaries. They often work as teachers or something in the area and, right. and work bivocationally. Um, at annual conference this year, we commissioned two new congregations in Indianapolis and in Plainfield. Um, and those pastors have been able to plant those churches while earning a salary. Um, they've both of them, I think, have uh, average worship t- attendance over 200 people, as I recall. Um, I know the one in uh, Plainfield is in that neighborhood. Yeah, right? About yeah. And I actually think um, that's uh, I think the gateway up on the north side of Indy is a bit larger than than attendance wise. Nice um, yeah. But but you know, so we're talking two churches at 200 people. That's a pretty healthy congregation, right? I mean, we're we're yeah, talking about of course as a um, as a former church planner, a yeah. former church planner in Plainfield, yeah. and myself, I know that uh, there's you know, a certain critical mass you Absolutely. Need yeah. to make a new church yeah. and work, work. So how did that happen? Well, I mean, I don't know all of the story, but I know both of those church planters, um, but I don't know them well. But I, I know enough of what happened there to know that there were local congregations with lots of resources that were investing in those church plants. And there was also uh, annual conference funding and training from our church development office to make those things happen. You know, And if you look at that whole arc, well, those are the kinds of um, initiatives that can really be very hopeful for the denomination because they you know, the, many of our churches are, are st- continuing to go healthy, and and some of them will make slow transitions and and continue to be healthy. But there does need to be these churches that are really taking on entirely new perspectives of ministry, and really sort of innovating in one way or another um, to to begin to reach persons that other United Methodist churches simply aren't going to reach. So the innovative and piece is important, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Because we've got to reach new people with the uh, the strategies and the innovations that yeah. reaches reach them. The, yeah. un, the the gospel doesn't change, but our strategies and our approaches do change, and that's yeah, very that's Wesleyan, right. of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think you know, just uh, from a, on a personal standpoint, I come. Uh, our family is uh, biracial, and um, we uh, Old Bethel United Methodist Church is a multiracial church of um, fairly large Hispanic congregation. We have a number of African American families uh, part of our contemporary worship there, um, and and still a majority white. Uh, population, but but changing every day. I mean, we're admitting the people in the membership um, every day. That's making that congregation more and more diverse. There's another congregation on the uh, in the east side in Lawrence. I believe it's Lawrence UMC is the name. Um, but uh, the, the UMC church there in Lawrence is another one that has a very very uh, racially diverse. Um, and and those are very helpful for me too because uh, you know. Uh, 
Sunday mornings are not known to be particularly uh, racially integrated times. Sometimes um, the most segregated hour of the that's week right. is 11 a.m. Yeah. on Sundays. And that was, it, it, that's actually something the Assemblies of God does very well. Two of the most racially diverse congregations in this city are uh, Lakeview Assemblies of God on the west side and Calvary Temple, or I guess it's in the caring place, yeah. Assemblies of God right. on the east side. And, th- and those are, that's an inspirational place to be. That's a place that I would love to. So you do see signs uh, of hope. Yeah, and you mentioned AG as well as you oh, see. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just a couple more things, and yeah. we'll let you go. One of them is, um, in as much as you've made this transition in your life, what kind of word or advice or conversation might you have with a uh, a person of any denominational yeah. background, mm-hmm. or perhaps no denominational background, who mm-hmm. is considering uniting with the United Methodist Church? What's yeah. a good word you might give them? Yeah, well, I. Two things that I would say, um, and and I these are things that I tell my students often because I've part of my job here is to train students for ministry, and um, and so when I when we're looking at you know, who are we going to affiliate with, who are we going to ground ourselves in, especially young people would rather not think that way, but if you're going to be a pastor, you have to ground yourself somewhere, and uh, and two things that I say, one is this the United Methodist Church that same um, kind of uh, openness to ambiguity that was that is so appealing to me i think is appealing for a lot of uh persons who are figuring out their place in ministry it it, it it's very uh it's an anxiety-ridden prospect to choose a denomination not knowing if um, if that denomination is going to be accepting of some small change you make in your theology down the road. And I can enter into the United Methodist Church knowing that there's virtually no place where I would no, no longer be welcome. Uh, in the United Methodist Church as a, as a pastor. Well, you say so we're, we're a big tent that sometimes gets right. stretched. It's a very big tent. Every once in a while it a little bit, yeah. but we're still uh, a big tent. Yeah, and, that, and that's a very uh, promising place for a minister to be, to know that, that there's going to be a place for you, there's going to be a congregation that you can serve. Um, and, and the second thing that I would say for especially um, ministry folks that are considering ministry is that um, there is so much opportunity leadership-wise within the United Methodist Church. If a person has high capacity for leadership, has a desire to, to serve Christ, a desire to pastor, um, this is a place that you can do that um, and and have a very healthy ministry. In the Assemblies of God, we have ministers that have master's degrees um, that with a master's degree, have never earned more than $15,000 a year for salary. And it's really unconscionable that we would not be able, that, 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 uh, that they would not be able to be better supported. Now, certainly some are well supported. But in the United Methodist Church, if you're a high-capacity minister, um, you uh, are in love with God and able to, to make disciples, there's a place for you to earn a salary that's livable to be able to, to do ministry um, in, a, in a supported environment and to have colleagues around you that are doing the same. And, and have uh, some freedom and the trust in order to do that, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one more thing, Jeremiah. Yeah. Just tell us something interesting or fun about either yourself or your family. Yeah. What's something about you? That uh, yeah. hobby or something like about that might be interesting for folks to know about you personally. Yeah, well, I'll, uh, there's a few things, I guess. When you, when you uh, are a theologian, uh, reading theology books is usually your hobby. Yeah, okay. but 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 I have I have been able to just recently because of a need at the church. I I said early on in my ministry I was uh, involved with music ministry. Oh, okay, and uh, just recently have. Uh, become music director at of the contemporary music at Old Bethel, um, where my wife is the pastor, and uh, and that's been a lot of fun for me. I'm learning learning guitar uh, techniques and and um, learning about the technology. Technology of guitar uh, has changed a lot. There's a lot of um, new um, devices for uh, guitar, and so learning about that technology and learning new uh, skills for guitar has really been a lot of fun for me and I get to put them in use weekly as I I lead people in worship 
Thanks again to Jeremiah Gibbs, chaplain at the University of Indianapolis, for the great conversation we had. Very far-reaching conversation. We had about lots of things happening in his personal life, his call into ministry in the first place, his journey from the Assemblies of God at the United Methodist Church through his uh, through his wife and through his relationship through Garrett Evangelical Seminary and a landing at the University of Indianapolis, a United Methodist school, and how that's all come to play as part of his process. But I certainly hope that you heard some of the parts about his talking about the uh, the power of ambiguity and how even the power of ambiguity has led to the openness to receive him into our fellowship and how that's a part of the opportunity is there for leadership and to be a welcoming place as, as well. Ambiguity, the power of ambiguity and opportunities for leadership are some of the things that he said is great, uh, great uh, opportunities in the United Methodist Church and signs of hope. Hang on to that. That's some perspective for all those to hang on to. The power of ambiguity and opportunities for leadership. Today's podcast has been brought to you by uh, the book, Meet the Good People, by Reverend Dr. Roger Ross. I am commended to you. You can check it out at our website or at uh, Amazon, and there's some good resources there for your small groups in your church, as well as preaching resource. And we, of course, we are supportive of Mission Guatemala. We invite you to check out Mission Guatemala under the direction of Tom Heaton at uh, missionguatemala.com. We are so glad you've been with us to join us on the podcast today. We do want to invite you to spread the good news about the Hoosier United Methodist podcast, where it is our mission to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana for the purpose of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. You can do so by uh, checking us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist, supporting us there and spreading the word about us. You can also and this really is what helps us a lot. Go to iTunes and there subscribe to the podcast and rate us. Give a five star rating if you so if we think we deserve it and give us one or two line review there. That helps other people find us. And of course, we invite you just to spread the word in your channels, your Facebook pages and uh, websites and so on and, and spread spread the word. So it's been good to be with you today. My name is Dr. Brad Miller. And our, as always, our mission is to do all the good we can. Good day. Thank you for listening to the Hoosier United Methodist podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. We challenge you to be an active listener by subscribing and becoming a vital member of the Hoosier United Methodist podcast community. Visit us on the web at HoosierUnitedMethodist.com and chat with other members at Facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist. Until next time, continue to make disciples and transform the world.